this month, we are going to get into a new uh, sermon series, Body Building. And um, it's funny because whenever I think of bodybuilding, I don't know, maybe it's because I grew up in the 80s and 90s, but I think of this comedian named Dana Carvey. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Hans and Franz, and we're here to pump you up. I don't know if you remember. Okay, anyways, that's just a... Anyways, um, so bodybuilding. No, we're not talking about that kind of bodybuilding. We're not talking about how to achieve that beach body for your summer outings or whatever. But we are going to be talking about building up the body that really matters, the body of Christ. And, um, you know, the body of Christ is a, is a metaphor. And we use metaphors in our, our everyday conversation quite a bit. But metaphors really are using familiar things to communicate unfamiliar truths, right? And Jesus does this a lot. Uh, you think about in John 15 when he says that I am the vine and you are the branches. He's not saying something about the disciples' um, skinny figures or whatever. He's actually saying something about his relationship to the disciples, that the disciples, even when he is not physically present, can abide and remain vitally connected to him. When Jesus says that I am the bread of life, he's not saying that uh, he is rotund. (laughs) What he is saying is that just like we have this bread, this uh, daily object that we ingest every single day, Um, There's something about personally receiving Jesus, relying upon him for strength and for life day by day. And this this was a metaphor that Jesus was using to communicate something spiritual, to communicate something unfamiliar. And in the New Testament, Paul uses this this, uh, concept of the body. He uses the body, actually, um, when he's talking about the church, he uses several different metaphors, maybe five or six different metaphors. I mean, you think about, he, he talks about the church as God's building. He talks about the church as God's bride, but he also talks about the church as God's body. And that's what we're going to be exploring for the next few weeks. What does that really mean when he says that we are the body of Christ? And so today, we're going to look at just kind of a, a big picture question. Why would Paul even use that metaphor in the first place? Like, Yeah, what's he trying to communicate? What's he trying to teach us through the body of Christ? And so we're going to look at three main passages, three letters, where Paul actually introduces this concept of the body. And we're going to look at them in chronological order, so to speak. Uh, 1 Corinthians, wait, Romans, no, 1 Corinthians, (laughs) then Romans, then Ephesians, because this is actually the, the, the sequence that we think he actually wrote these letters in chronology. Anyways, we're going to look at three main passages where the body metaphor is used. But before we open the Bible, let's open our hearts to God through prayer. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the opportunity. And we give you permission to, just now, as we open up the Bible, that you would open up our hearts. And no, we're not here just to pump up our physical bodies, but we do pray that you would strengthen and solidify our hearts in Jesus. Lord, this, uh, this metaphor of the body, whether it's familiar to some or, or new to some, we're asking that you would open our eyes once again just to see truth for what it is, to see what kind of relationship that you are calling for us to have with you and for us to have with other people. And just like the, we sang in that last song, Holy Spirit, You are welcome here. We recognize, God, that spiritual things that we're wanting to dig into today, they're only spiritually discerned. I recognize the frailty of my own heart, and I just ask that the blood of Jesus would cover us today. I pray that you would really minister to our souls and speak to us. Pump us up, God. Build us. 
in Jesus. For his sake we pray. Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bibles if you've got them, or if you have it on your phone, find the, the letter of, to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we're going to start. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And like I said, we're going to be looking at the body as, as Paul writes about it to different churches, to different groups at different times. And in 1 Corinthians, if you're familiar with the letters that, that Paul writes to the Corinthians, these are a, a group of believers that Paul was personally responsible for raising up. He was personally responsible for uh, starting this church. And as he's writing this letter, um, if you've read 1 Corinthians before, Paul really gets to the nitty-gritty. This is like, this is more than just an evangelist who says, all right, I started the church, now have a nice life. This is the pastor who comes close to the sheep and examines them and tries to see how they can be strengthened. He gets to the nitty-gritty of life. He starts, I mean, he addresses very specific issues. The fact that one church member is having a lawsuit with another church member. Uh, he, he gets to that right here in this letter for the whole church to read about. Uh, he talks about uh, relationships that are appropriate and then relationships that are inappropriate. And then he starts talking about divisions and schisms and factions within the church. And when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he addresses this issue of spiritual gifts. Uh, spiritual gifts, uh, the main concern here is not just that the church would function properly, but that the church would be together. And so I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Verse 12. And as we read here, just the onset, see if you can kind of get a sense of what was going on in the Corinthian church, the kinds of conversations that we're having, they were having with one another. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. If you're there, say amen. amen. All right, verse 12 starts. I'm, I'm reading from the New King James. It says, For as the body is one and has many members... But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is who? It's Christ, right? This is Christ's body. This isn't anyone else's body. This isn't my church. It's not your church. It's not his church. It's, it's Jesus' church. It's not funny how uh, we sometimes confuse that. But in verse 13 it says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So it's through surrender. Through, through surrender to Jesus. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Okay, so this whole idea of oneness, it's one, even though we're many. I mean, you can kind of read between the lines and, and hear the conversations that were happening in the background. Like, oh, he's over there. She's over here. I'm right here. Well, I'm of Paul. They're of Apollos. You know, they're of Peter, things like that. And, and this is what Paul is trying to get at. And in verse 15, he says this, If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? In verse 16, If the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? Okay, this is kind of comical talk, right? That Paul is getting at. And it's almost as if people are comparing themselves to each other, saying, well, I don't, I don't do things like that person does, so maybe I'm not even belonging to the church. Man, that person is a spiritual giant, but I could never be like that, so maybe I don't even belong here in the first place. That, that's what Paul is trying to get at. He's exposing those thoughts, and he's saying, no, that's not the case, because we're the body. Verse 18, but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as who pleased. 
just as he pleased. I love that. God assigns this, not we ourselves. So Paul is getting to certain issues in the church. We, we can tell that there's personal, interpersonal friction, that there are these expectations of almost fitting a mold, being cookie cutter in how we, how we not just do church, but how we live the Christian life, how we follow Jesus. And there are some people that are valuing one form or one version or one mold of Christianity over another. One mold of Christian service and then devaluing others. That they feel lesser or they sense that they don't belong just because they don't measure up to this perceived standard or that perceived expectation. I don't know if the Corinthians are all by themselves in this, but maybe you've sensed some of that. You've kind (laughs) of taken a look around and said, man, because I'm not like this, I really shouldn't be here. And I'm not just talking about the, the building, the place. I'm talking about the community. Because I'm not like that, maybe I really don't fit. But the point is, we are many members, and we need to be one. So let's read on. Let's see how Paul uses this metaphor to teach us, this, this whole body concept to teach us. So, so far, we've seen things that it's oneness of body, that it's Christ's body and not anyone else's. Uh, we've seen that there's an inclusiveness in the body, Just because I'm I'm not this way or that way doesn't mean that I don't belong. We also see that there's diversity in the body, right? Not the whole body is a foot, praise the Lord. Not the whole body is a nose, praise the Lord, right? Um, That there's diversity in the body and that God is the one who actually assigns the diversity. It's not a spiritual gifts assessment that tells you your place. It's not a nominating committee that tells you your place. Uh, Is that okay? God is the one who assigns. And that there's value for every member. I want us to see this in verse 20 and onward. It says this, But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are what? Necessary. I love that. And those members of the body which think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. And I love this, verse 25, that there should be no schism, that means division or cracking in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. Paul is setting some things straight that the Corinthians, in their selfishness, had kind of let seep into the way that they did life together. The goal here, I love, is that there should be no schism. Where was that? Verse 25. That there should be no schism in the body but that there should be care, care for one another. I don't know if you realize this, but God's ideal for his church is not just the absence of fighting, but the presence of genuine care. You follow that? I mean, we can say happy Sabbath, and we can smile, and there can be, on the surface, an absence of no friction. But what God longs for more than just the absence of no fighting is the presence of genuine care for one another. 
And I think if, if we're looking at what the body teaches us, according to 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul is using this concept of the body, what he's really wanted to teach us is unity. Unity. So we're going to look at what the body teaches us. It teaches us about unity. And when we're talking about unity in this context, it's a unity that doesn't mean uniformity. You realize the difference, right? Unity does not equal uniformity. Uniformity means everybody walks in step and looks the same and talks the same and Okay, unity, however, requires diversity. Unity requires diversity. It's, when the body is, is brought up here in, <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians, Paul is teaching us about a unity that values differences, that values each other's needs, and actually cares for one another. This is a beautiful thing about the body. All right, what else? Um, so we're going to move on from 1 Corinthians. And later this month, we're going to go back to these passages. So just kind of take note of them, even put a bookmark in your Bible for them. But uh, let's go now to Romans 12. If you're wanting to know all the body passages, it's Ro- uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and then Ephesians 4. There are a few others that have kind of miscellaneous use of of this metaphor, but those are the ones that we're going to look at. So now we're going to Romans, Romans 12. So that's to the left in your Bible. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. I don't know when the last time was that you tried to read through the letter to the Romans, but instead of speaking to specific nitty-gritty issues to the Corinthians where Paul actually started that church, Paul is now writing to a group of believers he has never met. He's writing to people that he wants to visit someday, and so uh, before he gets there personally, he wants to get there theologically. And so he sends this letter, and that's why when you read Romans, it's like you're reading uh, just like this theological treatise on what it means to be saved, because Paul wants people to know, even before he gets there, that you are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. All right? So this, this letter, he's highlighting just what, what it is to be saved. And then now, when you get to chapter 12 in Romans, he's highlighting Now, if you are saved, then this is what it looks like in your life. He's getting to the the behavioral or ethical implications of salvation in Christ. And so here we are, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Romans 12, verse 3. The Bible says this. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think, what's the next word in your Bible? Soberly. What, did I hear something else besides soberly? To, to, to think, think safely, maybe some of your versions say. Okay, so to think, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Verse 4, here's where the body comes in. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of who? Members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let's use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who sows with, sorry, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. All right, so here, this is one major spiritual gifts passage, one major bodybuilding passage. And I want us just to think, why is Paul even using this in the first? What's he trying to teach? What's he trying to teach? Well, what I would say is, did you catch the need? Did you catch the context, what people are thinking or how people are thinking? According to verse 3, did you see it? 
For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more what? More highly than he ought to think. Thankfully, this is only a problem in Rome, that you think too highly of yourself. What, what Paul is getting at, actually, Paul has already, in, earlier in the letter, he's already put everybody on an equal playing field. Um, I think it's in Romans chapter 2, specifically verses 17 through 20, where he's speaking to the Jewish believers, and he says, hey guys, uh, you, you're fallen from grace. To, I mean, you've fallen short of the glory of God. He has already humbled the Jews in his audience about their presumed favor with God just because of their genetic lineage. Okay, he's already done that. He's put them on a level playing field. And then he's, he directly addresses Gentile believers. I think it's in uh, chapter 11 where he's saying, hey, Gentiles, don't get so haughty about yourselves because you know that you're saved by grace and the Jews are, they're, they're, they're uh, persisting in unbelief. Don't, don't feel like you can get haughty now that you're saved by faith. <laughs> and so he's trying to put everybody on, a, on an evil, even playing field. And so he says, hey, when it comes to not just your relationship with God, don't think too highly of yourself, but now, when it comes to your relationship with other people, don't think too highly of yourself. I want us to realize something, that if, you know, earlier in the book of Romans, part of accepting the gospel is not thinking too highly of yourself. But here in chapter 12, part of practicing the gospel is to not think too highly of yourself. To think soberly instead. That's the positive recommendation here in verse 3. But to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. To think soberly, that means to think in your right mind. To think safely, literally, in the Greek. It's uh, to think uh, in such a way that you reflect true balance. In other words, the truly sensible person is a person of sound judgment who doesn't have an inflated head. (laughs) The truly sensible person is someone who doesn't have uh, an ego the size of this room. That's why in Proverbs, the, the, the wisest person in the world calls the proud a fool. Okay? The truly sensible person is one who has a, is one who sees himself in the body and has a a recognition that everybody else in the body is on the same level. The one who thinks soberly is one who is part of the body and recognizes that every other member has a measure of faith, a contribution that's unique and a contribution that is beautiful. So the body not only teaches us about unity, I would say this, that the body teaches us about humility. And specifically humility when it comes to other people's differences. I think when we start seeing differences in other people, this is where humility kind of fades to the background. We start recognizing differences and we start using those differences as leverage to exalt ourselves over other people. But that's not what the body is about. In the body, we learn a humility that where differences are not points of leverage to exalt ourselves, where differences are not an excuse to devalue other people. Differences, however, are all the more reason to esteem others. Differences are all the more reason to see others as vital to our own well-being. I don't know if this this happens for those of you who are married. You realize that your spouse doesn't think like you sometimes. Your spouse doesn't live at the same pace as you sometimes. Your spouse doesn't make decisions the same way as you do sometimes. And I hope that your tendency isn't to think, well, my way is better (laughs) than his or hers. 
What if those differences are actually not reason for you to think of yourself better, but what if those differences are pointers to realize your own weaknesses and your need for that other person in your life? That's what the body does. When you realize that you're part of a body, it teaches you humility, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but seeing that other people's differences are actually reason to esteem them more, actually reason to embrace them more. That, that the other people who are in the body that are different than you, they're not just to be tolerated, but they're to be embraced. You don't just tolerate your spouse's differences. You embrace them. Maybe you've got kids who they, their, their personality is just not yours. You want to bring them in line. No, but train them up in the way they should go. Uh, Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, I don't know, sometimes we actually mis- misinterpret that. It's not train them up in the way I think they should go. Actually, the, the, the literal meaning there is train them up like a vine, like how you train a vine to keep reaching towards the sun, but train them up in the way that they are wired to go, is what Proverbs 22 is talking about. And so when you see differences in your family, in your marriage, in your church, these aren't just to be tolerated or to brought into uniformity with yours. These differences are to be esteemed and embraced. It's beautiful. And when in verse 4, he talks about this need. Paul gets to the need that, that every one of us has. And the need is to recognize that though we are different, though we are many, we are all one body. We're all on the same team. Members with a diversity of function, but members, I like this part, members of one another. Where is that? In verse, in verse 5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Like, we actually vitally belong to each other. That's beautiful. And I guess the flip side of humility would be that if I am not above everything, there is one who is above everything. Right? And that's Jesus. That's why in some of the passages that uh, we won't spend a lot of time in, but in Colossians, Paul brings up this whole body concept, but he only brings up the body concept in order to highlight the head concept. And that head is Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So this is the flip side of when we teach, when we are taught humility in the body, we are taught the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Yeah? All right. So we, we, we learn unity. We learn humility. And here's the last one. We learn maturity. We're going to go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, actually, before we get to Ephesians 4. So go ahead and turn to the right. We're going to Ephesians chapter 2. So if you're in Romans, you'll hit the Corinthians, and right after Corinthians, you'll get to Galatians and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. And then we're going to get to Ephesians chapter 4. So we'll, we'll just take a look at this. Ephesians 2, when you're there, say amen. amen. All right. We're going to start in verse 14, kind of get a little runway, because he brings up the, the body concept in verse 16. I mean, you may, you may be familiar with Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is where we get those famous words, we are saved by grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Uh, but down in verse 14, as, he's, as Paul is just highlighting um, just the, the reality of God's grace, he's, he's really, this entire letter is a letter about God's amazing grace. And when he gets to verse 14, he applies this grace not just in how it changes our relationship to God, 
but how it changes our relationship to other people. In verse 14, it says this, For he, speaking of Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. What two peoples do you think Paul has in mind when he says, hey, the the cross makes the two become one? What two peoples? Yeah, Jews and Gentiles. That's the specific context here. Jews and Gentiles. I mean, you can talk about it as two parties at variance with one another. Um, you know, I, we were talking about the spouse relationship, the child-parent relationship. But this is what God's grace does. It, it brings the two into one. And then in verse 16, it says this, And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through what? Through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity. Enmity is a word for hostility. It's that feeling that enemies have towards each other. Do you realize what the cross does? The cross does not only put to death your sin. The cross puts to death what separates you, not just from God, but what separates you from each other. That's the power of the cross. Amazing grace, saving grace, is uniting grace too. Amen. It's beautiful. Paul makes this point about grace and its reconciling power. I mean, the issue that specifically, like we mentioned, it's, it's a cultural, racial divide. There's a sp- like a very real, tangible, generations, millennial, millennia-long uh, history of enmity and hostility. That was something that needed to be put to death. It was not something that the New Testament church was just going to let persist or sweep under the rug. No, Paul was saying, hey, the cross, sep- the, the cross puts to death that which separates you from God, and it puts to death that which separates you from other people. How does, how does God do this? He does it through the cross. Yes, the cross, it puts to death those things, but, but how does God's grace do this? I would say it's, it's definitely a process, right? It's definitely a process. And that's why we're calling this maturity. It's maturing in God's transforming grace. The body is supposed to teach us this, that we can mature in grace, that grace is something that reconciles me both to God and to others, that grace changes not just how I relate to God, but to to others also. Maturing in God's grace, being transformed in in God's grace. It means that when I accept grace, I can be a reconciling member of the body and not a repelling member of the body. Amen, right? Because of God's grace, those rough edges that have separated me from God, he can do away with. And those rough edges that separate me from other people, he can put those to death too. And like I said, this this involves a process. This is not something that is a switch to flip, something that can't be changed overnight. Can't be done in a day, but day by day. It involves a process of using my uniqueness, my, uh, yeah, we'll call it specialness, okay, Uh, that some people might seem as annoying or some people might see as a, a source of grating against others, but using my uniqueness to actually serve others using my uniqueness to supply the needs of others. And that's where Paul takes this whole body concept in a couple of chapters over, chapter 4. Maybe it's on the same page for you like it is in my Bible. So now go with me to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, you kind of get a hint of these issues 
where grace, if it's not received, uh, where it's not applied on the horizontal level, and it's only just on this, this vertical level, um, you, you see where, where it kind of leaves people lacking maturity. In verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13, the Bible says this, till we all come to the unity of the faith, like we saw in, in 1 Corinthians, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The reason why he's bringing this up, I mean, it's because that there are divisions. That's why he's talking about unity. It's because there's spiritual immaturity that he's talking about being transformed and maturing, growing up into the fullness of Christ. And all of these are addressed by understanding the church as a body. In verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning of craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This is awesome. Paul sees that there's spiritual immaturity, that people have taken grace, but they've only applied it this way, that they haven't applied it this way. They're saying, no, 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 no. When you're a part of a body, you experience maturity where grace now flows this way too. The body metaphor, in other words, allows us to visualize our personal identity in context. Sometimes we think of our identity just you know, me and God, this is what I am. I am a child of God. But what if our identity is more comprehensively understood when we see ourselves not just as a child of God, but as a part of God's family? Now, this is a subtle thing. I don't know if you're following me here. Um, see, while, while Christianity involves, uh, yeah, it has to. It involves an individual personal experience, right? No one can accept grace for me. I must do that. That's an individual experience. But it is not only an individual experience. Grace, the experience of God's grace, does not only happen in solitary isolation, irregardless of others around me. It's something that we in our Western world, I think, need to be reminded of. That, that grace is actually a, a community experience, too. That our spiritual maturity is to be viewed in the context of, of the group, not just in isolation. A complete picture of spiritual maturity involves both the vertical relationship and our horizontal relationships. To become everything that God saved me to be, I must let grace transform my relationship with God, going from dead in our trespasses, right? I mean, if you're familiar again with Ephesians 2 verse 5, it says that we were dead in our trespasses, and God raises us up to newness of life, okay? That's what grace does. It transforms my relationship with God, but it also transforms my relationship with the body. So that, how it says in, in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This is the beginning of chapter 4. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If I want to become everything that God saved me to be, I must, be, I must allow transforming grace to mature my relationship, not just my relationship with God, but also my relationship with other people. 
That's what the body teaches. And you know, I mean, these lessons are, are, I think this is really what Paul was trying to get at when he was specifically addressing the Corinthians, the Romans, the Ephesians, and to all disciples of all generations. And eventually we will get back, like I said, we will get back to these passages in the coming weeks. We'll talk about the spiritual gifts dynamics and how each member of the body actually does fit and how we find our growth as we, as we actually contribute, like it says in um, verse, uh, where was that? In verse 16, knit together by what every joint supplies. This is how we grow in our maturity. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about how we fit, how we can individually and uniquely serve. And I'll just say that, that we are going to get to that because we want to, especially when we relocate to our new, uh, new location in downtown or near downtown, um, we're going to be needing um, a, a broader volunteer base, a more organized volunteer base. And we're going to give each other the opportunity to serve in capacities and try out our spiritual gifts and stuff. But before we talk about all of that, before we talk about spiritual gifts, if we don't recognize what the body is all about, unity, humility, maturing and transforming grace, then all of our talk about spiritual gifts will only be, um, it'll only remain on the level of tasks and to-dos. It will only be a pragmatic matter. It won't be a spiritual matter. Do you follow that? I mean, like, okay, so a little bit of backstory. So a few months ago, our advisory council is, is uh, looking at ways that we can actually increase our volunteer base and give people specific roles and things. And we said, you know, we could just kind of lay out um, different jobs in the church, different volunteer roles in the church, and give people a chance to sign up. Maybe we should teach people about spiritual gifts so that they can go through a process of identifying, becoming aware how God uniquely wired them. But as I was thinking about this and praying about this, I realized, you know what? We can teach about spiritual gifts all we want, but if we don't understand the body, then all that talk about spiritual gifts is just about getting the job done. And that kind of resonates with me because I'm more of a task-oriented kind of person. (laughs) Okay, maybe you're like that too. But Paul didn't talk about spiritual gifts just so the job could get done. In 1 Corinthians, in Romans, in Ephesians, Paul was talking about spiritual gifts so that people could be part of a body. That's why he's using this metaphor in the first place. It's a, it's a body. I mean, we might be a highly functioning collection of individuals. That's great. But it wouldn't have a saving influence in the world. It would just be getting tasks done. Oh, man. I don't know if I'm communicating this the way that I, I, I feel like it needs to be. I mean, you think of it, we kind of just read this. At the very end of this whole treatise on spiritual gifts in Ephesians 4, look at it. Did you notice the, the very, very last line of verse 16? Knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by what, which every part does its share, you know, all this practical, pragmatic stuff, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. All of this. Understanding spiritual gifts, understanding how you fit, is supposed to crescendo into the experience of love. Actually, if you look at all the passages that we just read, they all do that. They, they all kind of head straight to love. Actually, uh, so going back to Romans, Romans twelve nine. this is at the end of the passage that we read. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them. <laughs> I think uh, other versions say, don't love with hypocrisy. Let your love not be with hypocrisy. 
In 1 Corinthians, the, at the end of that chapter, he says, you know what, all this stuff about spiritual gifts, being part of the body, yeah, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And then in chapter 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. In other words, we can talk about all these spiritual gifts, we can do this, but if you don't understand the body, if you haven't experienced love, then you're missing the point altogether. And that's what Jesus wants for his church. He wants his church not just to be very effective in getting things done. He wants his church to be a reflection of love. That's why in, in John 13, 35, he says, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if everyone is doing their job in the body. No. If you love one another. If you love one another. It's our love that gives the highest evidence of who God is. It's not just our productivity. It's a love that is built on the body, on our unity in the body, on our humility in the body, on our maturity in the body. And so a simple appeal today. You have an invitation, each and every one of you, to belong to the body of Christ. Belong to the body. How? Well, in Romans 12, it's by exercising faith that's been given to each and every one of us. In 1 Corinthians 12, it's by being baptized, by being fully submerged into and surrendered to Jesus. And in Ephesians, we become part of the body through the cross. I invite you simply to belong to the body. Really, belonging to the body means belonging to Christ. So maybe the better question is, or the better invitation is, belong to Jesus. Receive Jesus today, whether for the first time or again and again. Receive Jesus today. Exercise that faith. Surrender to him. Cling to the cross. What's holding us back? Why not be part of the body? Why not belong to the body of Christ? By a simple raising of hands, how many of you want to say, yes, I want to receive Jesus, and I want to belong to his body? Yeah? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you that you have given us an identity that's more than just about doing stuff, but being and belonging. Lord, I want to pray for each individual and each family, each household that's here. And I ask God that on a personal experience, in, in, the, in the sphere of our relationships of everyday life, in the sphere of our household relationships, you would give us an experience of, of love that unites that keeps us humble, and that causes us to grow into mature Christians. And Father, I pray that as our church continues to take steps forward, that you would use us to, or that you would live through us this experience of the body, that you would truly be our head, and that we would be fully surrendered to you. God, I pray that we would belong to Jesus. I pray for an experience of daily surrender. I pray for an experience of coming to the cross and letting that, the merits of the cross transform our relationship with you and with those around us. May our church be an experience of that. May our church be a reflection of the power of transforming grace. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Let everyone say, Amen. <laughs>